Jude, verse 4. And brethren, let us hear God's holy word. For there were certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Cori. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are, without water, carried about of winds. Trees, whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of this uh, most holy word to us this evening. Well, this is in many ways a perplexing passage. And certainly, if you have ever done any meditating upon it, and if you have uh, taken the time to read... Uh, Various commentators on it, you will find a, a wide variety of opinions on how this passage is to be understood. Uh, Arthur Pink spends a good bit of time 
on it in his chapter on reprobation and his sovereignty of God. And many uh, commentators uh, have spent a, a good deal of time trying to untangle uh, some very difficult passages here. And uh, I'm happy to say I'm not going to attempt to untangle those this evening. That's not our purpose. I want us to focus on verse 4 and how it lies in its context, at least what light we have on it, and, uh, and apply it to our subject this evening. In verse 4, we hear of certain men creeping in unawares to the uh, assemblies of the Lord's people, coming in among them, and, and, uh, and it says that they, are, they, they creep in unawares. They have sneaked in to the assemblies of God's people. They profess to be Christians when in fact they are not. And <clears throat> it says, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ordained to this condemnation. Now, <clears throat> the word there, ordained, is certainly a challenge. Literally, the Greek reads here, of old having been written before. Of old having been written before. Or, who long ago were written for this judgment. Now, this is one of the places where the commentators take off, wrestling with exactly how is this to be meant. The word doesn't necessarily mean ordained, so why did the King James translators use it? <clears throat> and if it's speaking about something written before, what's it, what was written before? And there's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, thought from different writers regarding this. There are those who would say, well, this is talking about the books of the living and the books of the dead that are in heaven. Uh, we know that the elect are written in the book of life. And there are those uh, <clears throat> whose wicked works are written. And, uh, and there, there are a great number of commentators that uh, would, would say, well, this is what it's pointing to. Is ultimately, it's talking about having been written long ago in the book of God's judgment. Then there are those who would um, point to several books that are outside of the scripture, saying that the writer was familiar with the book of Enoch and several others, and uh, there are passages in there that this could certainly be making reference to. But I tend to think that because of the context in, in which we find this verse, and reading all of the, the verses down to verse 19, so many Old Testament passages are referred to, I think that if it is, in fact, speaking of something written long ago, it is the Old Testament prophecies, and even the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ of false teachers who would come among the Lord's people. I am always more comfortable and more satisfied when context points us to uh, the Scriptures themselves rather than to works outside of the Word of God. Not saying that the Scriptures do not point to works outside of Scripture from time to time. They certainly do. But I think uh, in this particular context, uh, I am at least presently convinced that going back to all of these Old Testament examples and passages, <clears throat> that the written before 
to this judgment is speaking of the prophecies of those who would come into the assemblies of God's people. And that being the case, prophecy is the word of God and the will of God, spoken and inspired by the Spirit of God through human writers. And prophecy exhibits the will of God, the purpose of God. It ultimately points back to his decrees. In other words, what we're saying then <clears throat> is, if in fact what we're talking about is false teachers in verse number 4, <clears throat> who have been prophesied regarding in the Old Testament scriptures, those things can only reflect the eternal purpose of God. And that is likely why the King James translators use the word ordained. If it is God's eternal purpose for this to come to pass, then these are certainly ordained to this destruction. And that brings us back to the doctrine which we've been speaking. The doctrine of reprobation. Now, as we noted in our last study, election and reprobation are inseparably joined. It is impossible to choose from a group of people or things without leaving the rest. There simply is no such thing as choice from among other items that by its very nature does not leave certain of those items. If God chooses to give life to some sinners, then he has clearly left the others to themselves. If God gives the gift of faith to some, then he does not give it to others. If God draws some men to himself, then he clearly leaves others alone. If he gives light to some, then he leaves others in their darkness. If God has given some sinners to his Son, then he hasn't given others to him. Now this is a difficult matter for any human being to contemplate. And once again, we're in a very sober, sober subject. But brethren, it is the teaching of the Word of God. This doctrine is found page after page after page. If something has been prophesied, it clearly flows from the eternal counsels of God. If teachers are coming among God's people, separating themselves, sensual as it says here, and then being justly condemned, then it is clear that from God's eternal purpose, He has left them to this wicked work. And He has turned them over to their own wicked hearts. Let's review just for a moment the meaning of reprobation. As we looked at it last week, I thought that this would be simply one study, but <clears throat> clearly uh, has extended to this evening. Our theological definition basically is was this, that reprobation is the purpose of God whereby He has determined to pass 
some men by with the gift of saving grace, and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. We said that the elements of reprobation are preterition and condemnation. Preterition and condemnation. The word preterition, preterition means to pass by. And when we speak uh, of preterition, we mean God's eternal purpose to leave some men in their sins. And the condemnation, then, is God's purpose to damn them for those sins. Preterition is a sovereign act of God and is rooted in the sovereign will and pleasure of God. Condemnation is a judicial act rooted in the sinfulness of those rejected. We do not know why God passes by some men. This is the mystery of His sovereign purpose. But we do know why He condemns them. They are sinners. In other words, the reason for preterition is unknown, except that it is to be found in the the sovereign counsel and God's eternal purpose. But the reason for condemnation is clearly known. They are sinners. So those two things go into what we refer to as reprobation. A comparison of election and rejection is helpful. We looked at this last week, but we will simply uh, review again and then go on to the scriptures once again. Both election and rejection are rooted in the eternal purpose of God. He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Both are determined by God's sovereign will. Both are purposed in eternity and worked out in time and both endure for eternity. In election, God shows mercy. In rejection, He shows justice. In election, God works in His people to make them holy. In rejection, He leaves them to their own devices. God is the active agent in His people's holiness. And in rejection, man is the active agent of his own sin. In election, His people are not saved because of their works. In rejection, men are damned because of theirs. In the elect, God is the author of faith. In the rejected, God is not the author of their unbelief. So, having refreshed our thinking on that, we spent a a good deal of time in in Romans chapter 9, and we discussed the issue of Pharaoh. We will not uh, return to that this evening. We will simply go back to the Scriptures and look at uh, quite a number of other passages that will point us to this notion of God turning men over to judgment. God leaving men in their darkness. God hardening men for the very purpose of bringing judgment upon them. Brethren, if you want to see some 
sweet little old ladies get hot under the collar. Start teaching this. If you want to see some nice gentlemen who are normally very nice, calm, and composed folks, begin to talk about God hardening men in their sins, and you can see some huffing and puffing come up in a hurry. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For, listen carefully, he wouldn't let Israel go by. Why? Well, we're told, For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as it appeared this day. Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let the people of Israel pass through his land. Why? Well, he didn't want them to. And he told them so. But we're told that it was God that hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate so that he could bring his judgment upon them. And that's exactly what happened. They destroyed them. Deuteronomy 29.4 Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. Israel was a stiff-necked people. And yet, Moses says in the plainest language we can imagine, the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive. He showed them miracles. He lived among them. He lavished His mercies upon them. But we can clearly discern from that that even in the presence of all those things, except God give us a heart to believe it, we will remain stiff-necked, stubborn, and desirous of our own ways. Joshua chapter 11, verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All other took, they took in battle. For, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might find no favor, but that he might destroy them, as the Lord commanded Moses. Brethren, once again, in, in language that is not difficult, we see God bringing judgment upon these heathen nations. Joshua made war against them a long time. And there are people that want to say, well, you know, they were heathens and so God brought judgment upon them. It, it wasn't that, uh, you know, he wasn't being kind or gracious to them. Uh, you know, they were just pagans and uh, Israel came in and they were clearing the land. But rather than that, misses the point altogether. If it had been God's purpose for all those people to have been converted to the faith of Jehovah, 
then God would have instructed Israel on how to go into the land and teach them the worship of Jehovah. They had teaching priests. They could have gone in and said, we're coming into the land and we're all together going to become one. And we're going to show you the worship of the true God, the most high God. No. God hardened their spirits so that Israel would utterly annihilate them. And the, the, the word that, that should grip us is that that they might have no favor. God intended to judge them. God did not intend to convert them. He withheld His mercies from them. Judges chapter 14 verse 4 But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Of course this is the story of Samson. But what we want to see in it is that all of this that was going on with the woman that Samson was interested in didn't simply have to do with uh, a son getting married. It wasn't just because he wanted to marry someone outside of his nation. Yes, this was all part of what was going on. Samson really wanted her. He really said to his parents, get her for me. That's who I want. And he really wanted her. But God's sovereign hand was behind all of this because he was going to ultimately use Samson to bring down great judgment upon the Philistines. He, God, sought an occasion against the Philistines. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Excuse me, 1 Samuel 2, 25. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding... They hearken not unto the voice of their father. Because the Lord would slay them. Because the Lord would slay them. For Samuel 16, 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. An evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Saul was in rebellion against the Lord. Saul did many wicked things, and it was not of the Lord's providence to show him mercy. Brethren, David sinned mightily against God. And yet the Lord showed him kindness. David was involved in adultery. We don't read that of Saul. David worked up a wicked, lying murder. 
Saul was pretty outright in his hatred of David. But God was not going to have mercy on Saul. He had mercy on David. Why? Brethren, these are in the hands of God. But it was clear. God sent an evil spirit to trouble Saul. 1 Kings 22:19. And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. This was spoken to Ahab. The Lord set forth a spirit that would lie in the mouths of the prophets so that Ahab would be killed in battle. Now, Psalm 105, verse 23, recounting the great redemption from Israel, uh, of Israel from Egypt says Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies he turned their heart to hate his people to deal subtly or craftily with his servants Proverbs 16.4 The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. And brethren, there are others. How sobering this is. I mean, it doesn't fill our hearts with joy as when we hear a glorious message on propitiation. It doesn't fill us with the same eager delight as hearing about our justification by faith alone in the Lord Jesus. And yet, brethren, it is absolutely clear that God is sovereign and rules as He wills, as He will, because He wills. And He doesn't have to stoop down to us and explain to us why He does what He does. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And while we want to look at this and say, 
how can this be? The scriptures very plainly tell us. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, evil, neither tempteth he any man. God does not work evil in men, but he turns them over to reprobate minds, to do what their wicked hearts desire to do. And in so doing, they accomplish his wise and sovereign purpose. There are New Testament passages. Matthew 11.25 says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Brethren, this is an astonishing passage. If you've ever taken just a few moments to think about it. The Lord Jesus is thanking His Father for blinding men. He is thanking Him for leaving men in their spiritual darkness. I thank Thee, O Father, Lord, Ruler, King, Sovereign of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid. Because thou hast hid. Brethren, the Pharisees were not unsavable. It wasn't that they were a category of men that were harder to save than others. No man is a difficulty for the living God. God had chosen to leave the most religious people on the face of the earth in their darkness. And he hid the truth from their eyes, bringing judgment upon them. It was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 6. And we're told in John chapter 12, he has, he has closed their eyes so that they may not see, and their ears so that they cannot hear. Christ says, even so, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Lord, if you did it, it's good. Matthew thirteen eleven. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. That is one of the most striking passages in the New Testament to my heart and to my own thinking. It is as plain as it can be. It is given to you, disciples. You're the true Israel. But it is not given to them to understand. Given. It is the mercy of God. It is His grace. John 6, 65. And He said, Therefore I said unto you, No man can come unto Me except it were given unto him of My Father. Therefore, brethren, every single one who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ can only say throughout all eternity, I am, I am what I am by the grace of God. I, am in, I will be in heaven only because of the grace of God, only because it was given me. But that very word, brethren, means that it was not given to others. John 10, 25. 
Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Please notice, very important, the way the Lord structured His words. He doesn't say, you are not my sheep, because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. How is it that they hear his voice? He's already told us. It is given them. He is speaking here to those to whom it has not been given. You don't believe because you are not my sheep. And not the other way around. John 17, verse 9, the Lord Jesus again says, I pray for them, the ones that the Father has given Him. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given Me, for they are Thine. We could not have a, a clearer statement of distinguishing grace of particularism and the very notion of the fact that the Father has given some to Christ for whom He will pray means that there are those not given to Christ for whom He will not pray. Romans 9, as we have already read, verse 18, Therefore hath He mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will they harden themselves. No, it doesn't say that. It says, Whom he will, he hardeneth. Now, no doubt, their hardening themselves is included. But it's told us in the way so that we cannot miss it. If we're going to say he has mercy, then we cannot escape the fact that he also hardens. Romans 11:7 What then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for but the election hath obtained it and the rest were blind dead Notice it doesn't say were blind We might be able to attribute it to them if we said they were blind but it says they were blind dead someone blinded them it was done to them Israel hath obtained it. The election, excuse me, hath obtained it. <clears throat> but Israel has not. They were blinded. And of course this goes in harmony with all that we see about the coming judgment of Christ when He came His first time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Once again, as clear as it can be. Christ says, God has chosen some in Christ. As a footnote, what does that say about us? Not many wise and not many noble. Nothing here for us to be puffed up about. 
But you'll notice, we're the foolish things chosen by God in contrast to those that He has not chosen. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Even Him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth. I didn't say that they had the love of the truth. They received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause... God shall send them, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Men are not damned because they're not chosen. They are damned because they are sinners and they love their sin. And God has chosen to leave them in it. First Peter 2.8 And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being diso- disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Appointed to stumble in their disobedience. Of course, the the passage that we read at the beginning, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. But brethren, we, we have to go even a step further. If we begin to understand this, and it is vast, it is vast, you'll begin to see it popping up all over the place. A better way of perhaps saying it is you'll begin to see it revealed, manifested all through the Scriptures. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, well that's Mark's version of the Great Commission. So what? What does that have to do with reprobation? What was going on in the world until that time? Who had the revelation of God? One nation. One nation. Brethren, the whole world was lying in the lap of the evil one with the exception of one nation. You alone have I known among all the nations God says. Now, this doesn't mean that the Lord didn't save certain individuals in heathen and pagan nations. We certainly seem to have evidence of that in the Scripture. But as a whole, the world was in utter darkness. Century after century after century after century. God was not unable to bring them light. 
He did not. Most sobering words in the New Testament, Matthew 7, verse 23. The Lord Jesus says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It doesn't mean simply that he did not have a loving uh, union and communion with them while they were alive. As we well know from the word foreknowledge, God had a love before time. I've loved thee with an everlasting love. He loved his people before the foundation of the world and gave them life in Christ before he ever said, let there be light. So when he says to those who stand before him that he cast them off for all eternity, he says, I never knew you. What are we to say to these things? Whatever my God ordains is right. Holy His will abideth. Brethren, God could have saved all men from the very moment that Adam fell. God could have saved all men equally had he been pleased to do so, God could have damned all men since Adam. He was under no obligation to save any sinner. The only thing God owes sinners is damnation. God could have saved all he could have saved none. In His mercy and grace, He has been pleased to reach down into the dark sea of mankind and draw out a people for His Holy Son. Why study so sobering a subject as reprobation? Number one, because it's the Word of God. And we must know the Scriptures. Number two, because in the study of His extraordinary and unbending justice, that background gives an extraordinary glory to His grace to sinners. When we see, brethren, when we see that the Lord could have left us, justly left us where we were, leaving us in our stinking sins. It is extraordinary that He came by His Spirit and opened our hearts. Brethren, when we study this, 
can only bring us to our knees and say, why was I made a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Brethren, in exalting the justice of God, we see the eternal grace of God in a way that nothing else exhibits. May we bless and praise our God. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus, that you died upon the cross to save sinners, when we see that we all deserve just damnation. All we can do is praise thy name. How I praise thee, Lord. And you have saved us. We beg thee to save more. Father, there's another day going by. We want to see more brought to Thee. You are a God who saves. And You don't leave all men to their just rewards. Oh, we will not be entering heaven crying, Give me justice. All that will be upon our lips is praise to Him who showed us mercy. Seal these things to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.